Hello and welcome to Global Digital Futures podcast brought to you by the SOAS Coding Club. I'm your host, Chipoma Pondera, and you're listening to SOAS Radio. This week, we are speaking to Dr. Admaya Mare on social media and the changing election landscape in Zimbabwe. Dr. Mare is a senior lecturer at the Department of Communications at the Namibia University of Science and Technology. He is also a senior research associate at the University of Johannesburg's Faculty of Humanities. His research interests include analyzing the complex intersection between technology and society, people-centered social policies in the global south, digital journalism, social media and politics, media and democracy, media and conflict, and the role of artificial intelligence in changing African newsrooms. He currently leads the international research project Social Media, Misinformation and Elections in Kenya and Zimbabwe, which is Somekezi, and that's funded by the Social Science Research Council. He is a member of the African Media Salon, and he serves on the editorial boards of Digital Journalism, African Journalism Studies, and Communicare. Hello, Dr. Mare. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Chipo. Uh, look forward to this interview. So let's just get right into it. If you could please give us some background context on how have phenomena like fake news and social media influenced Zimbabwean politics. Thank you so much. Uh, so essentially, I was saying that uh, when you look at uh, the issue of misinformation and disinformation or what people often uh, call uh, fake news, it became a big issue, of course, when you talk about the American elections in 2016. In Africa, it has always been there. And it has always often uh, manifested itself through, you know, things like rumor, gossip, and all that, these other things. And now, of course, the memes that are being circulated on social media. So if you look at how it is actually affected the recent Zimbabwean elections, one can actually see how it actually created a situation where, you know, there was confusion in terms of which party to vote for, which candidate to vote for. And it also created a situation where it was, the elections were so hyper-polarized to the point that, you know, people didn't even know what to do in terms of making sense of the, the political information that was being disseminated. So in many instances, fake news creates a situation where you've got a misinformed citizenry, but also it creates a situation where it becomes difficult for people to make sense of what is going on around them. And how would you say that it differs now versus before the digitization of politics? I would say that before the digitization of politics, there was no virality, you know, it was not that viral. So now there's this issue of, you know, the mass diffusion of misinformation via WhatsApp, for example, via Twitter, and also via Facebook. It becomes very difficult to contain it. Then it could only be circulating amongst, you know, certain groups. So it, it had its own echo chambers that it could create. But nowadays, what we are seeing increasingly, it becomes very difficult to weed it out because all of a sudden, one thing can be released right now. In the next few minutes or seconds, it's already, it's already gone global. So it becomes very difficult for people to deal with that. That's what I would say. The digitization of politics and also the digitization of even communication, political communication itself, has created a situation where it becomes very difficult to deal with our misinformation in politics. So could you describe the information landscape that currently fosters fake news and cyber propaganda in Zimbabwe? One is obviously information, uh, information scarcity, or what we'd call information poverty. The other thing is also the nature of the media landscape, the nature of the media system that we have, where most of the, the dominant media systems actually, or the media uh, platforms owned by the state. And it creates a situation where access to information becomes controlled by the state. 
when it, they release it, they release it. What, what they only release information that favors them, or sometimes even release propaganda to you know to spruce up their image. So at the end of the day, that kind of a situation where you have got the government having a predominant control over the media platforms creates a situation where it becomes very difficult for the ordinary people to have access to information. So when they try to get access to information, they often go to alternative sources, of which we are talking about WhatsApp, we're talking about Facebook, we're also talking about Twitter. And that situation creates a situation where those who have got access to technology and also access to information can actually circulate uh, even things that are not even verifiable and also things that are misleading in many, in many instances. So I would say the ecosystem that we have in Zimbabwe creates a situation where it becomes very easy to have misinformation and disinformation. And also even the polarized nature of our politics, where it's a winner takes all, also creates a situation where people can actually lie and even misinform uh, the public. Right. What are the specificities of cyber propaganda in the recent Zimbabwean elections or the most recent Zimbabwean elections? So what are some of the social implications of that cyber propaganda? And how was it even disseminated? Okay, so cyber propaganda was a big issue in the last elections, especially the 2018 elections. And obviously, you could you, one thing that came out very clearly was that we had what we term cyber troops or trolls that were you know hired and also even uh, sponsored by different political parties during the elections. So yet, on the one hand, the Devarakashi, we were you know supporting the ruling party. Whereas uh, we also had the terrorists who were supporting Nelson Chamisa and the MTC Alliance, and there were other, you know, cyber troops that were also aligned to other smaller parties, like, for example, MDCT that was funded by, you know, Doctor, you know, Tokozani Kupe. We also had also others that were also supporting uh, smaller groups like uh, APA that was also a part of the, the election. So. Essentially, cyber propaganda manifested itself mostly on Twitter. And the, the, the reason why it happened on Twitter mostly is that if you look at the way in which social media is actually being used, before 2017 or 2016, one could say politics in Zimbabwe pretty much was playing itself on Facebook. And we have seen the transition from politics being centered around Facebook you know, to, to, to a situation where you see most of the main political players, but also even the most public intellectuals are now domiciled, they are now domiciled on Twitter. So Twitter has now become the epicenter in terms of the politics in Zimbabwe. So essentially that is created a situation where different political, you know, political public intellectuals, but also different cyber troops that are hired and sponsored, and mostly those are aligned to ZANU-PF, like Arakash actually receive monthly data bundles, they also receive money for the activity. So that creates a situation where you've got people that are just prepared and also paid to actually churn out uh, misinformation, but also churn out propaganda and maligning uh, different uh, political uh, opponents, but also even, you know, maligning even ambassadors. For example, if you could see what really happened, especially in the run-up to the 2018 elections and how certain cyber troops were actually vilifying the activities of certain ambassadors, especially from the US and also from the UK uh, in Zimbabwe, and also other, other ambassadors that are also coming from the European Union. So it became a situation whereby, you know, they, they had access to data. They also had access to even classified information about these individuals that could, they could actually peddle through these uh, platforms, like especially Twitter. Of course, WhatsApp here and there, but mostly we have seen that Twitter is the epicenter of uh, uh, the cyber propaganda campaign that are actually happening in Zimbabwe right now. Let's take a short break. 
You are listening to the Global Digital Futures Podcast with Chipo Mapondera, where we discuss the latest in digital media and technology in the global south. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. It's interesting that you're talking about WhatsApp, Twitter, and Facebook. What exactly is the context of how the different technologies are being used or the different platforms are being used and even the mobile penetration and internet penetration in the country? And how does that tie in with political communication? Okay, so in terms of uh, internet penetration, we're talking about something like 52% internet penetration. But also, if you look at the way in which those people that have access to internet, mostly it's mobile, what we call mobile internet. That's what they, that, that's what they use. So obviously, it's your social media bundles that they buy from you know, these uh, established uh, telecommunication companies like Econet, NetOne, and Tele- Telecel. So essentially, that's the kind of... And if you look at that kind of uh, internet, is that it, it demonstrates that most of the people actually who actually do a lot of uh, you know, tweeting and a lot of uh, posting, Mostly, uh, even the cyber troops themselves are also domiciled outside of the country. And that also creates an interesting situation where you have cyber troops not only based in Zimbabwe, but also outside of Zimbabwe. And these people actually have got unkept access to the internet. And that creates a situation where they can actually be able to spend the whole day tweeting and you know, responding and you know, doing all kinds of things on these uh, platforms. So looking at access on its own, it, it can be deceiving because they are, we have got people that are actually outside of the country that have also, so they are not captured in the, in the, in the cities that, that you see from Portras, for example. So these people actually are also being uh, sponsored, paid for by different political elites to, to actually do certain kinds of political work on Twitter, Facebook, and also on WhatsApp. So the implications, of course, of having, you know, you know, you know this, you know, limited access to the internet is that most of these uh, campaigns that we are talking about are pretty much urban-centric. They are happening in, in urban areas, but they are also happening in the diaspora. And there's, 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 there's that gulf between the urbanites and those that are in the rural areas. So those in the rural areas, tend, sometimes they don't even understand what's really happening in Zimbabwe. Because most of the political work and also political contestations are actually happening on Twitter and also on Facebook. But then what does that mean for the political campaigning then? If you said 52% internet penetration, right? or mobile penetration. So what about the other 48%? How are they being reached or targeted? Because I'm sure those are important votes as well. And who is reaching them and how are they reaching them? Yeah, so one thing that is also very interesting about it is that whereas if you look at what has been happening over the last years, that whereas the opposition parties have tended to concentrate their efforts on campaigning online and using all these other platforms like Twitter, Facebook, and WhatsApp, the traditional parties like you know your liberation kind of you know parties like Zanopio, they still maintain that you need to go down to the rural areas. And that's what they've done, and that's why they've cordoned off all rural areas to say these are no 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 go zones for the opposition. So they, they use their own mechanisms to spread their own messages. They, for example, they use traditional chiefs to, to communicate their political messages. They also use local councillors that are also in these areas to talk about whatever is happening uh, in terms of their campaigns. But they also do uh, rallies in this, in this campaign. So if you look at the ecosystem of campaigns in Africa or even in Zimbabwe, per se, it's much more broader, it's more, much more complex. It's not only relying on one 
a one communication tool, but it's, a, it's, a, it's using a multiplicity of communication platforms. So you can use your digital media, but you, can, you still need to use your traditional media, for example, the radio, newspapers, you know, you also need to do face-to-face campaigns, you need to do door-to-door campaigns, but also you also need to rely on traditional chiefs to reach out to these people. So it's, 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 it's about thinking about how do you go about campaigning, but using a multiplicity of communication platforms so that you can reach different people that are also not probably present on the, on, on, on the digital uh, platforms that we, we are using nowadays. And can you give us some examples of the types of campaigns that took place on um, social media? You spoke about the cyber troops, but what Mm -hmm. else? I'm sure it's more dynamic the way that they used like Facebook Live and WhatsApp and Twitter, etc. apart from cyber troops. Can you um, give us some information about that, please? Yes. So... What we have also seen, especially the last elections, we have seen the, the, the mass use of Facebook Live, for example, by political parties. So, for example, you know, opposition parties that don't have access to the, the public uh, televisions like ZBC, for example, we saw what they were doing, especially in the last election, they were resorting to actually doing their own Facebook Live political events. And that allowed them to have at least uh, more audience beyond just uh, Zimbabwe, but also even those in the diaspora. But the problems with those kinds of campaigns, as I have already pointed out, is that they also tend to be very urban-centric. Those, so those who have only have got access to the internet are the ones that are going to be able to watch your videos. Those are the ones that are also going to interact with whatever you are doing. So it creates a situation, yes, where you are, where you are active on Facebook Live, but in rural areas, people don't know what you are doing or can't see what you are doing. So that creates a situation where you need to then be able to find ways of actually bringing that same message that you are broadcasting via Facebook Live and take it down to the grassroots so that people can understand your, your message. So that was the, the missing, missing link in terms of the opposition campaigns that we saw in, in the previous election, where they were pretty much more interested in making sure that they were very active on Facebook Live, but at the end of the day, they were not able to take that same message uh, to certain areas that were considered to be no-go areas by the, the ruling elite. Let's take a short break. Join the Global Digital Futures community. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at global underscore futures. Let's keep the conversation going. So apart from social media, has there not been any rise in independent media platforms then through the internet? You know, maybe even using YouTube videos or podcasts or blogs and websites, you know, just to create other spaces for media in Zimbabwe that maybe counter the traditional medias that are inaccessible. Certainly, we have seen a lot of uh, what some, some would say diasporic media or even online media platforms. For example, we have seen so many uh, so many websites are popping up. For example, we have got Neander, Neander Radio. We also have got Zim Live. We have got New Zimbabwe. We have so many other. Zim I is another platform. So there are so many other platforms that have come into existence. But also even digital, also digital startups like, for example, Two Six Three Chat. For example, is coming to being. We have also one, one which is also called Bindula, formerly which was uh, TechZim. We also have, uh, you know, Site Zimbabwe. There are so many other platforms that have, uh, you know, come into existence as a result of this space that has been created whereby the government has been trying to control the media platforms. But uh, at the same time, the problems with some of these things, as I try and uh, highlight, is that 
they tend to be very elite-centric. And in as much as they are trying to, to, to also add more, more information to this uh, communication ecosystem, the problem is that they are, they are concentrated mostly in urban areas. And so you are, preaching, you are preaching to the people that already know the message that you are trying to do. So that creates a situation where it becomes very difficult for them to go beyond. But also we have also seen the rise of you know, podcasts. Nowadays we are seeing more and more podcasts, but also YouTube channels. But also very interesting, we have also seen the rise of uh, com- you know, kind of like comedy coming into the news, news business. For example, I think you know, you know Doc Vikela. You also know Magamba, you know Magienda and Gonyati. You also, there's, there's so many of these other you know, comed, comedians that are also getting into the news-making business and also creating a situation where they are actually creating very interesting and very engaging content that cannot actually be propagated by even mainstream news. We also have seen Farazipi, especially from Mashingo, also doing the same kinds of messaging that uh, even news media actually do. So it's a wide uh, range of things that have come into being to try and fill the gap that, that is already there in the media space in Zimbabwe. Just with the notion of the control of the traditional media, there might be perhaps a misconception that online there's a freer space for dialogue. Can you maybe comment on that and whether there is a free space for dialogue or if there are certain risks that also are getting passed over online, like voter control and voter management, that sort of thing? Certainly, yes. The the online space obviously opens up space for voices that are often repressed and silenced in the traditional uh, media or also even excluded in the traditional media. But at the same time, I think, as you have already highlighted, there are also risks around surveillance, you know, whereby, you know, the government can actually be able to monitor what you are doing, and also, especially with the, with the rise of these cyber troops. So cyber troops are not just there to post, but also to compile names of people that are actually, you know, transgressing certain, you know, expect, expected things by the, by the ruling elite. So again, it's, there's also surveillance that is also connected with this uh, trend of cyber troops in Zimbabwe. That creates a situation where, people end up having to silence themselves or actually self-censor themselves so that they don't uh, end up in these so-called black, uh, black books where they are, you know, your names or something can actually be written down and said you are considered to be probably a danger to the country or a danger to, to the ruling elite. But also we have also seen that the government of Zimbabwe has also become very sophisticated, especially that it has got relations with countries like China, Russia and Belarus. We have seen recently 2016 and also 2018 internet shutdowns or even social media throttling becoming a, a norm. And also that creates a situation where we are saying that in as much as the, in the, the online is an alternative, it is not everything. It can, always, it can also be controlled, not only controlled by the state, but also controlled by telecommunication companies like your, your mobile service providers, but also even controlled by social media companies on, on their own. They are business, uh, business entities, so they are in there for profit. It's not just they are there for promoting democracy or promoting freedom of expression. So that also creates a situation where it becomes very complicated to rely on these platforms for political communication. Have, um, now that you mentioned the role of the international platforms, how would you say that they play a part or in elections, let's say, in Africa? Are they actually playing a direct role or the political ecosystem in you know, African countries is just using them as a tool according to the existing social, socio-political context? Certainly, uh, we are using them just to, to feed into our existing social-political context, really. 
Of course, they, they are playing, in, in one way, you can say it's, they are playing a progressive role because they are in countries that are very repressed, that are very closed, like Zimbabwe, for example. They are allowing, you know, the ordinary people to have access to other alternatives, platforms for them to speak out, to, to campaign and other things. But at the same time, they are also allowing, you know, the ruling elite to actually do, you know, predictive, you know, sentiment analysis, but also predictive, uh, you know, trying to predict voter behavior, but also trying to predict uh, political opinion. Is, 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 is so it allows them also to become more, more sophisticated, more nuanced in terms of how they are going to deal with the voters. So it's a double-edged sword in many, in many instances. On the one hand, it's empowering, but on the other hand, it's also disempowering to the same people. So it's neither here nor there. But what I would say that, you know, these platform companies certainly, uh, you know, have complicated the, the political, you know, they have actually enriched the political landscape in many, in one way or the other, but also they've also made it uh, also very easy for these uh, politicians to be able to predict what is likely to happen and to actually be able to come up with, uh, you know, circumventing uh, strategies to deal with those uh, kinds of possibilities. Let's keep the conversation going. Send your comments, questions and feedback on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at global underscore futures or email hello at globaldigitalfutures.com. We might just give you a shout out on the next episode. So I think we've spoken a lot about the parties themselves, but what about the voters? How did the voters discuss the elections online, like in recent elections? What were the trends based on like what the youth were saying, what was being said in rural or urban areas, and what was the general like feedback or understanding of the electoral process as it was communicated or discussed on social media? Okay, so there were many ways in which the ordinary person actually used these platforms to communicate. First and foremost, we saw the rise of what we call citizen-initiated campaigns, where you know, citizens take, take upon themselves to campaign for their own political parties or campaign for their own political candidates. We saw that quite a lot. There were so many ordinary people that actually changed their own profile pictures and put their, their, you know, the profile pictures of their, you know, the images of their own uh, you know, parties or their candidates. That's, that's a way of campaigning. But we also saw so many people discussing about the, 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 the issues related to the credibility of the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, which, if you remember, before the election, so many people were you know, not sure about the, the, their credibility, not sure about their role. You know, some were saying, actually, they were already captured by Zanobia, or some were already saying that Chikumba, who was the chairperson of the, of the, of the commission, was already being put there by Mnangagwa's regime so that she could just do their, their bidding. So already people were already talking about that. But we also saw so many other voters also talking about, you know, trying to talk about electoral violence that were happening, especially in far-flung areas, especially in rural areas. But we also saw so many voters also talking about, you know, incidences where, you know, certain, uh, you know, ballot boxes were being staffed or being moved from one area to other. So it allowed people to start monitoring uh, electoral violence, but also elect- monitoring the electoral process itself. But also, it, we also saw many, especially young people, talking about what they were referring, mostly uh, referring to as uh, the generational mandate, that it was their, their generational mandate to ensure that they vote for change and make sure that they deliver a new Zimbabwe, which would make sure that their, their lives and their livelihoods guaranteed and also safeguarded going forward. But also, we also saw a situation where, especially those in the rural areas, you know, 
especially young people from rural areas, they were commenting, but they, for them, they were pretty much, you know, trying to understand, you know, the implications of, of, of these elections. For them, they were thinking that maybe, you know, if, if maybe a government of national unity or something like that, whereby whoever is going to win was supposed to, you know, to include people from the other, you know, the other, the, the losing political party so that they could actually forge it a unity government that would take Zimbabwe to, to the next level. But obviously, those were just conversations that were happening online. Obviously, we know what happened after the, the elections. Obviously, the winner, is, as I have already pointed out, we have an, election, an electoral system in Zimbabwe where the winner takes all. And in such a situation, you are likely to see a lot of polarization. You are likely to see a lot of, you know, a lot of backbiting and a lot of hate speech that accompanies those kind of political campaigns. And was there any significant dialogue post-election and post-results and maybe any continuing political dialogue that's happening now, regardless of an upcoming election or not? So after the election, certainly uh, the, the, the ruling party said they were going to create a, a platform which they call Pollard, which means all political parties were going to come together and then... Uh, uh, and start talking about how to, 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 to forge a united Zimbabwe and also try and see how they can actually have a, a united vision in terms of uh, developing the country. But what we know again is that it's only, it's only the smaller parties that, we, that, that, uh, that, we, that um, uh, embraced that kind of a call uh, from uh, Emerson Mnangagwa, uh, the, the, the main opposition political party, the MDC alliance led by Nelson Chamisa, refused that, uh, that olive branch. And when they refused, obviously, we know what happened. They, you know, the, the country was again, you know, you know, torn into two, into two. So you've got this two-party system where it's either you are ZANU-PF or either you are MTC. So again, that was reproduced despite the fact that there is this ongoing uh, dialogue under the, the, the auspices of Poland. But right now, in, in the last few months, of course, we have seen attempts by, you know, the South African government, but also, you know, the ANC, uh, the ruling party in South Africa, trying to come into, into the picture and trying to find ways of actually talking to the current government to see how they can actually be able to sit down with the opposition party, uh, the MTC alliance, so that they can address what they call the Zimbabwean crisis, the Zimbabwean question or the Zimbabwean crisis. But as we already know, again, after the, the two... Uh, uh, two visits that were, you know, dispatched to Zimbabwe, uh, first by the, the, by the president, Asirio uh, Ramaphosa, but secondly by the, you know, ANC uh, government, you know, the ANC party. We realized that uh, what is very clear and very apparent is that, uh, them, you know, the, the current government in Zimbabwe is saying that there's no crisis and therefore there's no need for dialogue. And in that kind of a situation where the, the ruling party is saying there's no crisis, yet the opposition is saying there's a crisis, and almost everyone is saying there's a crisis, and also even the neighbors are also saying there's a crisis. It becomes very difficult for even neighbors to intervene because they intervene on, under, on, under, under what, what, what authority and using what kind of mechanisms to be able to, to, to validate their mediation. So it, it is a situation where we pretty much still on the same uh, page where pretty much there's a, there's a standoff in Arare and we don't know how it is going to, to pan out in the coming months. But obviously anybody who understands and also reads uh, and see what's happening in Zimbabwe understands that once the lockdown uh, measures have been lifted, when everyone else starts going back to their everyday lives, certainly we are likely to see an implosion in Zimbabwe because the current political and also economic situation in Zimbabwe is not is unattainable because most, uh, most people that are supposed to be very productive, your teachers, your nurses are earning something like, like less than $30 a day. And 
that is certainly not uh, sustainable uh, in any context. So what it sounds like is that despite any conversations online or any digitization about of the dialogue um, on politics and maybe an increase in alternative platforms to discuss the Zimbabwean political situation, perhaps, I don't know what, how you might comment, but is there really, does it actually even have any real bearing on political progress or socio-political progress in Zimbabwe? Or is it just talk? I would say it's a mixed bag of so many things. Yes, political talk online is very important. It it, it, it actually uh, allows people to, to ventilate but also it also allows uh, uh, certain people also to, to take action where, where necessary. So it does have a bearing in terms of what is happening. But at the end of the day, the political will, if there's no political will amongst the politicians themselves, any talk can happen, all kinds of talks can happen online. They are likely not to change much in terms of what is really going to happen in terms of uh, the political programs that these people have to, to go with. So... I would say, yes, people must continue to talk, continue to, to raise awareness in terms of the political situation in Zimbabwe, you know, continue to, 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 to expose corruption where it is actually happening, continue to expose uh, mal, 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 financial mal, mal, mal administration. But at the end of the day, it's about the political will. If those in power uh, feel that they are not accountable to anyone and they feel that they've got a free reign, it's likely that, you know, nothing really of, uh, of substance is going to happen. But one thing that I just want to say is that, yes, this political talk that has been happening, especially under the auspices of the Zimbabwean Lives Matter, this flag and all these other, you know, hashtag movements that we have seen, has actually led to a situation where, you know, the region has realized that we need to, to do something about the Zimbabwean situation, especially with the recent uh, attempts by, uh, by, by Sadiq by, by, by and the African Union under the, 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 the leadership of uh, Cyril Ramaphosa and also even the ANC delegation that was sent. Is there, is the, all they saw, it was because there was something that was happening online. It's because people were making noise about something that was happening. That led them to actually say, okay, let's send some people to go and see what really is actually obtaining on this uh, uh, particular front. But at the end of the day, it is about the politicians themselves. They have to, to decide what has to happen. If they say no, then we, we may remain stuck in wherever we, where we are right now. Thank you very much, Dr. Mare. I think you actually summarised it really well uh, with your last comment. So, yeah, thank you so much for your time and for this really important conversation. Thank you so much for this invitation, Chipo. Thank you for listening to this episode with Dr. Admaya Mare. To connect with Dr. Mare, email amare at nust.na or admiremare at gmail.com. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe and follow. Also, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It will really help with our ranking. And if you enjoyed the episode, please share the podcast with your friends. You can find us online at www.globaldigitalfutures.com and on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at global underscore futures.